Welcome to Blue Talks. Did you know that one in four people, one person who's an alcoholic or addict, sorry, affects four people on average. That's a lot of people they affect. And also, did you know that 10% of the workforce has a substance dependency issue? And according to the definition, a substance dependency is someone who has a loss of control around their drinking and they go through some kind of physical withdrawal when they're not using their substance, whatever the substance might be, any other drug. And then we have 10% of the population at work, another 10% who are alcohol abusers. And in this category, they are experiencing problems in their life somewhere, and they're continuing the alcohol or drug use despite the problems. And so if they're having problems in their life, they're probably you know, taking themselves to work and not functioning as best as they can. So um, I'm going to tell you that I was one of these people who had a substance abuse issue at work throughout my working career. And I'll tell you a little bit about some of those stories um, in a moment. Um, I did get clean and sober at 24. My sisters did an intervention on me and I've been sober, clean and sober 34 years now. And I continue to grow and learn. It's a continuous kind of thing, you know, growing and learning in my life and clean and sober. I started drinking when I was 13. I drank, I don't know if you ever guys heard of the, the crap mix, but you just, you take your parents, uh, you go to your parents' liquor cabinet and just do this with it in a jar, <laughs> put the lid on and out to the back hill with your friends and drink it. And I was just immediately, I was just, I love this stuff because... I would just put my feelings away and it just gave me euphoria. It was, it was a great feeling. And so I became actually an alcoholic like at 13. I drank like that. It can happen to teenagers and young people. I drank like that always when I drank after that. So I'm wondering if you wonder why alcoholism is not being addressed right now in the workplace. And it's because there's so much stigma about it. And what stigma is, is a lack of understanding and a negative viewpoint of something, right? It's disgusting, un, you know, unlikable, unlovable, whatever. It's a terrible thing. So actually, we want to go back a little bit in history that happened around the 1600s. There was actually bloodletting. Well, actually, before that, the Egyptians did it like 3,000 years ago. So they thought by like draining some of your blood, you would like lose the affliction. That didn't work. Um, they also thought that, it, you, you know, at some time in the same timeline that you were um, possessed by evil demons. And so the priests came along to, to exercise them out of you. Um, they also did lobotomies in the, the 1940s and 1950s without people's permission. They did lobotomies and they cut out a piece of the brain um, and they added alcohol in it to deaden it. But that didn't always work. It didn't work. So they stopped doing that, and then antidepressants came around after that. Um, so that's, a, you know, and in the 1700s, they also shackled people to walls in dungeons, you know. They didn't torture them, but they shackled them nonetheless to walls. 
So there's a huge lack of understanding of mental health and addiction and a lot of stigma around it until really, I guess 1956 was another important moment where the American Medical Association defined addiction as a disease. Alcoholism is a disease. And so it wasn't any of those things like sinful. You weren't the devil if you had an addiction and you didn't have to go to a dungeon and you weren't weak-willed or immoral. So after that, the disease model from the American Medical Association, the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders, or the DSM-5, Psychiatric Disorders, they also acknowledged alcohol abuse and, and it's there as a mental illness, along with depression, anxiety, PTSD, etc. So I'll talk about like different ways that people look at addiction now. Um, one of them is AA. AA believed it was formed in the 30s and it was uh, came from uh, Bill W who was a, a member of an organization, a religious group, and he had a bad alcohol problem. It's written about in the big book of AA. And he, he found out that the best way to get sober was helping other people because he didn't know where to go to get help. There was no help for him anywhere. The doctors didn't know what to do. So he just started helping other people. And as he did that, the society grew and people started to get sober. He was part of a spiritual community before that. And he brought God into the picture. And he, the steps are about turning your will and actually asking God for help, right? Around your life, will and life. And uh, so he actually, um, people are very successful in that way because I think in my practice I've seen when somebody believes in a higher power or, or a, a force that loves them and wants the best for them, they have another like sort of set of friends or, you know, angels, what have you, that gives them power. And in my story, actually, I believed in a higher power. I was brought up Catholic and I went to church every week and I believed in God and I believed that God loved me. You know, I got that and... So at the later stages of my drinking, I went into the church and uh, I was sitting in the pew and you know that song, Amazing Grace, that saved a wretch like me? I was a wretch, you know, I just felt like a wretch in church and I, I don't even know what I said to God. I didn't say help me. I was just like, like, holy, I'm not gonna drop an F-bomb or anything, but like, ah, you know, I'm in rough shape, dude, <laughs> like, and uh, he um, moved in my life. I believe that God moves in our life. Um, and that's when my sisters did the intervention. And that happened after a series of wake-up calls in my drinking. So, you know, there's a period of change before people have to get it. Like, alcoholism can be defined with denial is very common in alcoholism, which is a psychic defense against pain. So we don't want to acknowledge we have a problem, right? That, that makes sense. And also, it comes from trauma. So when a person has trauma, like I had some, and, and, and actually, Terence Gorski, who's a researcher in the addiction field, he's an expert on relapse prevention, said that 80, 70, 80% of families are dysfunctional. So in some way. So there's, you know, we're all, we're all in it together. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so apart, back to the family and trauma. So when I experienced trauma, I experienced abuse throughout my life. And so did my dad. He came from trauma. He, he went through the World War II as a kid without his dad and his mom. And they hit his brother and the Germans were on the street. He was in Holland. 
and it was a terrifying time for him. And he grew up terrified from his dad too. But anyway, so this trauma gets passed on generationally. So I grew up with subject to that. And that's why when I hit 13, I was like, this is great. I'm, I'm you know, away from all that. And so it's like Gabor Maté says, when you have pain and trauma, it's like it comes to the surface feeling like shame, not good about yourself, whatever, fear, you know, whatever we have, you know, thinking about thoughts about what people are thinking about us, whatever. And then we use something to put the pain down and obliviate it and, and go to oblivion. And that's why people like escape with, with drugs or alcohol or other things, their reality. So uh, trauma is, is so common and, um, and a lot of people have addiction in my experience. And I've, I've met thousands, I've treated thousands of people with addictions and they have basically shame, you know, that every feeling bad about themselves, they're feeling bad about themselves when they come into treatment. So um, I was talking about the family when, a, you know, there's a dependent in the family, like some who's substance abuse dependent, the family around them gets affected, right? Like a mobile, it's really a family disease, they call it. So if you pull on a mobile, all the other pieces move, right? So if you have an alcoholic or a dependent person, people around them become codependent. And so this happens at work too. The codependents go into denial because the alcoholic's in denial. So no, there's not a problem. You know, it's the elephant in the boardroom. No, we don't have a problem. Nobody has a problem around here. Um, and there's this outward focus, right? Like because the alcoholic is so chaotic, et cetera, there becomes an outward focus on, on the alcoholic in the family. So the codependents have trouble focusing in on themselves and, and coming close to themselves and they enable the addiction because the alcoholics are very forceful about it sometimes and uh, or manipulative, right? To keep things the way they are or they split from their family and they go isolate a little bit. So um, back, to, um, back to where I was about the causes, et cetera, about addiction. Some of it is genetics. So it is passed along in families. It does drop from the family tree. Um, and uh, also, uh, it is, uh, it's a very complex and challenging disease. It's caused by a number of factors. And the more factors that you have, let's say you grew up in a culture where there's addiction, it's accepted like ours. So I'm just going to take a little drink of water. A culture that like ours, it's accepted. Stress, trauma, what all these things add up to having an addiction with the more um, with the more factors that you have. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, my experiences at work that are kind of funny, but not so much funny. <laughs> and now I can laugh at them. But my first legal job, I um, worked at a dry cleaning store. I was 16. I just got yeah. And my boss introduced me to some Maui Waui, and I. Wow, you know, here's the bud and all the rest of it. So I started smoking and I became addicted. And that's my supervisor. So supervisors can have addiction too at the workplace. We must know bosses do. And um, there's dealers at work that sell as well. And the more isolated a person is, the easier it is for them to use, right? So we nobody was around. We were just working the night shift or the late afternoon shift in the dry cleaning store. So there was no bosses checking up on us. So that happened at 16. And then I worked for a major oil company in uh, Calgary. And my boss was an alcoholic. He was a great guy. He was really funny um, from England. He'd bounce in and out of the office. 
And he'd bounce back after lunch with a little redder face and a little bit more of a wobble in his walk, a little more exuberant. And uh, that was okay. I was like a fellow, fellow drinker, whatever. But at that time, I was quite, uh, my, my, my addiction had progressed. I was drinking alone and I was feeling quite, quite depressed at that time in my life. And I was thinking, boy, it would be nice if somebody had, if there was some help around here. I felt isolated, you know, about my drinking because that's what happens is people start to isolate themselves when they get into later phases. You know, it's like a curve, the bell curve upside down. So addiction goes like this and it gets worse and worse and worse. And then you can bottom up, get help and then get well, or you don't because it's a chronic fatal condition and it's progressive. It gets worse, never better. So, um, there are a lot of people like it's an epidemic right now. The op the drugs in the culture right now is huge. And you know, there's not proper funding for it and it, it's not being addressed at work. It's like the, uh, you know, it's like the ugly little nephew or something like that, that people want to keep hidden away. And, and there's nothing wrong with being an alcoholic. You know, you're not, we're not bad people. We're just sick people, you know, who need to get better. But unfortunately there's still a large degree of stigma which I'm on a mission to change <laughs> the world and help the, help people like me get help and, and others around them, learn to work with them and, and help them. So um, another job that I had, this is, a, this is one I thought was kind of funny. So I was working a reception job in Calgary again and somebody called up and I answered the phone. They were looking for something and I said, so wait a minute, I'll see if I can find somebody who cares. <laughs> and I thought, well, whatever. And then 10 minutes later, my boss was downstairs and I was out on the street. He fired me immediately, grab your coat and bag and off you go. So that was actually illegal because alcoholism is a disability. It's considered a disability now and you can't just fire somebody who has a disability. So that's another thing that people need to learn to do is to have conversations with alcoholics, right? And have boundaries and whose problem is it? And and how to help people who don't might not know that they're having a problem, right? So I feel like I, we have a bit of an obligation like that to do once we know. Um, I worked at a drinking driving program and um, when I was in California studying and this one guy had 11 DUIs and he was still blaming the police, you know? He wasn't his problem. But by the time somebody drinks and drives and gets caught, they probably drunk and drive, drunk and drove uh, 200 times. So when they say, oh, it was just the one off, you know, I just had that one little cocktail. Not like alcoholics, we can lie a lot, right? Or no, it wasn't me, no, no. So um, yeah, so after I got fired there um, at the oil company, uh, that was pretty close to getting treatment after that. Um, another example in the workplace um, was the Exxon Valdez. Did you hear about that oil spill back in the, I think it was the 90s? And the, the captain of the boat had a history of DUIs, but they didn't do anything about it. They didn't have the knowledge or the expertise in the area to put him on a monitoring program where he'd have to check in with somebody every week and get his random urine tests and things like that. So that was a huge cost of addiction that wasn't managed well in our culture, as was it's a bad one from Nike. They had a party and somebody drank at their party, drank again, and then got in a car crash and he became a quadriplegic because of the accident. And so was Nike liable? Yeah, they were liable. So it's a, 
it's a very sad issue, addiction it can be, and it's a it's a dirty right, rat bastard disease. I heard it's a it's a beast addiction, but it can be beat and people can recover, and um, that's what I'm trying to um, put the word out and some hope that we can recover, and um, and I hope that maybe at your workplace or if there's somebody you know, you you might feel like you might able to ask about that or what the policy is or just become a little bit more comfortable with it and familiar and um, with the issue. And I'm totally here to help anybody who, um, who needs any help or wants to talk after. And um, I guess you can find me at genevanderham.com and, uh, and I'm on social media. And uh, thank you very much for your kind time and attention today. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.